1: So, uh, my interest for this series of classes is grafting together the insights of contemporary Western psychology with the core teachings of the Yoga Sutra tradition of Patanjali and also the basic and uh, core insights of the Buddha, especially early Buddhism, and how all these come together and how they impact your life. Because we could spend a lot of time together exploring the polemics of each tradition, how each tradition developed, and go through an interesting historical and philosophical analysis of terms and ideas. But what I'm interested primarily... is how these practices can change your heart, how they can impact uh, your relationships, and how we can work together to look into these traditional teachings so that we can translate the teachings into our culture at this time when I think our culture really needs practices and values that can help shift our insane busyness, uh, the effect we're having on the environment, this crazy, unjust economic system we're all racing within. Um, I'm interested in how practice can be translated to affect all these issues. So how inner work and outer work, um, how social action and psychological understanding um, can be more than just intertwined, but seen as a a core practice, rather than these separate things that we do and try to integrate. So this is my goal. We'll see if it can be pulled off in a way that affects your own life. So to begin with, the first term I'd like to talk about is the term yoga. Yoga. So the term yoga comes from the verb yuj, which means uh, to unite. And when it's taken out of its verbal form, it means union, or the fact that everything is inherently drenched with everything else. So I like to translate the term yoga as intimacy. It's the realization of, and the continuous practice of intimacy. Intimacy with what's actually happening in our moment-to-moment physical experience, our moment-to-moment mental experience. Most of the time when we think of intimacy, we think of being intimate with pleasure. When I wrote my first book, I wanted to call it The Intimacy of Yoga, and the publisher said, no way, intimacy just means sex. Uh, I fought, uh, but I lost. Um, So when we talk about intimacy, we're talking about the closeness, the ability to be one with our experience, without being caught in self-reference, and also without losing ourselves. And that dance is what I'm going to refer to as intimacy. And one of the techniques we use in order to practice intimacy is called mindfulness. And the term mindfulness nowadays in popular culture is incredibly, uh, how should I say, two things. One is if you write a book with the term mindfulness, uh, it will be an instant bestseller. Uh, mindfulness in golf, mindfulness in business, mindfulness in politics. A US senator just published a new book on mindfulness in politics. Um, and also in the medical world, mindfulness seems to attract research money. So if you are an academic, especially if you are a neuroscientist, and you use the term mindfulness in your research, uh, you will for sure have access to new areas of funding. Um, So, mindfulness right now is a real phenomenon. What's also interesting about the phenomenon of mindfulness is that the delivery systems of mindfulness meditation in our culture are completely different than they have been in history. So, the core teachings of yoga and more so Buddhism, once Buddhism left India, those core teachings went to different countries and in those countries monasteries were built so that people could practice mindfulness meditation and a lot of the values that we're going to be learning about. So that's called transplantation. But in our culture, mindfulness meditation is not so much uh, in a process of transplantation, but a process of translation. Because most of the people teaching meditative and contemplative practices in our culture are not wearing robes, many of them have never even been in a monastery before, and in a way sometimes I feel like I'm almost out of a job, because most of the people teaching contemplative practice in our culture are in schools and prisons and hospitals and in academia. So the delivery system for meditative practice now in our culture is actually institutional. And this has never ever happened before. As these traditions are coming to North American soil, we're not building monasteries. We're actually they're coming to life within neuroscience, cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, uh, philosophy. Um, and I actually think this is uh, both fantastic. And it's a major problem. And hopefully, as we go back and forth between looking at a Western psychological worldview and also from a traditional worldview, we'll see how these practices can come alive in our culture, and we also might question the way they're coming alive in our culture and whether this is a good thing or a problematic thing. So, I could say much more about mindfulness. Um, But let's just start with this term, these two terms, which I want to go over in detail today. Intimacy, which is how I'm translating the term yoga. And the word mindfulness, which is how I'm translating a Sanskrit word. smrti, which is in the Pali tradition, the word sati. For those of you familiar more with the Pali language, Um, the word smrti is a verb, and it means to remember. And the reason why it's translated into mindfulness is kind of a complicated story. But I want to look at that translation in terms of our own practice. So, when we practice contemplative practice, and meditation in particular, usually we start with the present moment, symbolized by this small dot. And what we do within the present moment is we take an object, and we use that object of meditation as something to return to whenever our attention has wandered off into the past and into the future. So for example, let's say the object of meditation is the inhale and the exhale. Or let's say the object of meditation is sound, noticing sounds in the space, sounds in the body, sounds in the city. There are 40 different objects of meditation. We're just going to talk about two of them. So one of them is the breath. So you inhale and exhale, notice the breath. And then you're inhaling, you notice the breath, and then you feel some discomfort in the shoulder. You think, oh, pain in my shoulder, why is there always pain in my left shoulder? I should get massage more often, but I don't know any massage therapists, and they're like $100 for an hour, and I don't, can't spend $100 for an hour. How come I can't spend money on myself? How come I don't have $100? Why am I a yoga teacher? I can't make any money. Can I ever take care of myself? I'm telling everyone else to take care of themselves. It goes on and on, and then, oh! And then you come back again to the breath. Or, if you're meditating on sound, you might hear a sound. This morning in this space, we were meditating on sound, and then somebody was singing opera. Oh, I like the sound of opera. I never go to the opera. I don't know anything about the opera. Oh, I went once to the opera with my girlfriend, but that relationship really ended terribly. Maybe I should get back to the... So lonely. How could I ever find a partner again? I really just want to meet somebody, so I'm going to start taking meditation retreats. Oh, but you can't talk on a meditation retreat. Oh, and then you come back again. uh, But actually, the best place to meet someone would probably be a meditation retreat. And so maybe I should go there. How would you find a meditation retreat for singles? That would be a really good thing. And maybe if I started getting into opera, I could... Oh, and then you come back again to the... So this is your mind on meditation, basically. And this rambling out over here has a name, and we call it Chitta Vritti. Chitta is usually translated as consciousness, but I'd like to offer two alternative translations. The first is, Chitta is your attention span. And when it's combined with this term vritti, vritti literally means a revolution or a turning. There are a lot of yoga postures with the name vritti in them. So a turning of attention, and when we put chitta and vritti together, the way I like to translate it is one superficial imagination. So it's the part of your attention span that is not full of good ideas. It's the part of your imagination that's repetitive and that moves in circles and repeats itself over and over again. So one of the things you'll notice about when the mind or the attention wanders off is you tend to go back into the same stories again and again and again. And as we age, we plug in new content into the same stories, the same plumbing system, the work story, the money story, the sex story, the family story. Usually you only have about five, and you can see, if you look closely, how you plug in different content into those same patterns, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. So this is called chitta vritti. So a lot of beginner meditators, when they first start meditating, they judge themselves by how much they're thinking, and then they make thinking the enemy of meditative practice. But actually, what's most important is not that you're looking at how much you're thinking, but whether when you're caught, if you can come back or not. You see? So, let me use a different color. So, in the moment you're caught out here in an idea, the moment you catch it and you return again, this is called smriti, to remember. So one translation of the term smriti or mindfulness as a technical meditative tool is when you're caught, the moment you come back again. And in a way, when we first start learning meditative practice, what we're trying to do is come back again and again and again and again, tethering our attention back to the present moment via the object of meditation, whether that's the breath or a sound. In yoga postures, when we use practices like ujjayi pranayama, when we're focused on the sound of the inhale and the exhale, that becomes an object of meditation so that every time our attention wanders off, we come back again to this sculpted long breath which tends to absorb the attention every time we've wandered off, which will happen again and again and again and again and again. Does this make sense? Yeah. So this is called smriti. So I like to think of this process as as the practice of yoga, in the simplest terms. Yes. Is uh, smriti the moment when you catch yourself, or is it the moment you actually go back? Both. Usually the moment you catch yourself is the moment you start going back again So in a way the most important thing is that you're able to catch yourself Let me say that a different way the most important thing before you catch yourself is that you're just able to stop So some people their minds are off and this can last like ten years And it's interesting in neuroscience they've discovered a new area of the brain that they call the default motor network. And I was just learning about this this week. And the the default motor network is the part of the brain that lights up when we're not intentionally paying attention to something. So when you're intentionally working on something or creating something or reading, our attention is focused. And when you don't have volitional attention... You're, the part of the brain called the default motor network lights up and this is when our mind starts wandering. Okay? And what's interesting about the default motor network is it lights up the parts of the brain that create self-reference. <coughs> so one of the problem with problems with mind wandering is when we start mind wandering we tend to be thinking about ourselves. And there's a direct correlation between mind-wandering and unhappiness. So when we're not paying attention to something or we're not trained to be able to stay with our experience in a moment-to-moment way, the default motor network turns on and then we're often self-referenced which I think we all know leads to unhappiness. So, the first definition of mindfulness is as a technical term, which is to come back again and again and again. Some of you here are yoga teachers, and I always feel like the job of a yoga teacher is just to use sequences of sensation to get people to learn how to come back to their moment-to-moment physical experience again and again and again and again and again again, so they're intimate with what's happening in their moment-to-moment experience. Retraining our attention, which our society has reinforced in a kind of distracted um, and uh, hyperactive way so that we can come back into a life where we're able to give our attention to something in a sustained way so the second definition of smriti, which is also really important to understand is not just that we're coming back to a technical meditation object but also that we're coming back to a way of looking at our experience that cultivates insight and wisdom. So traditionally this is called the three characteristics and I'm going to go through those uh, slowly and we'll look at them in some detail. So, one of the interesting places where the yoga tradition and the Buddhist tradition uh, have some commonality, and I'm talking about uh, the Yoga Sutra tradition, is in this teaching on the three characteristics. The basic idea is that if you look closely at your life, you'll notice that within your life, there are three traces or three characteristics that are verifiable, that you can perceive, that seem to occur again and again and again. And these are often called three insights. The first is anitya, or impermanence. That when you look at your moment-to-moment experience, you start to see that everything that arises changes and then passes away. Everything. Nothing stays the same. Our relationships that we put so much effort into with the hope that they're linearly building towards something are all in flux. In fact, maybe there is no such thing as a relationship. Maybe a relationship are just conditions in constant change. That would be an interesting way, I think, for us to look at relationship. Our physical body, our sensations, are constantly changing. How many sensations have you had today? A thousand? A million a billion and where are they now they've all changed and how many thoughts have you had today and where are all those thoughts we don't know where they come from and we have no idea where they go so everything that we can perceive through our sense organs and through the mind is constantly in flux constantly changing And the mind, the word for mind is manas. The mind, at some deep level, doesn't like impermanence. So there's a mechanism in the personality that tries to get bigger than physical reality, which is what we call metaphysics. It tries to get meta bigger than physical. So that it can make sense of impermanence. And the job of the mind is to frame our experience. So, picture the mind, all the mind is doing is, is trying to frame everything that's happening so it can just go, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's who they are. Oh, that's who I am. Oh, that's a fire truck. That's the fan. That's that person I don't like. And we're constantly trying to frame experience. And the mind is always trying to find a frame that's bigger than whatever frame we created before so that we can try and find a final frame. This is the job of religion. is how do we try and create the final frame that leaves nothing out. But every time you create a frame, you create a shadow that you then have to have a frame in order to uh, find again, to discover again. Mm -hmm. So whatever you look at is in flux and then you might say, well, how is that different than any other philosophy? Doesn't every philosophy say that everything changes? So the difference in the yoga and Buddhist traditions is that not only is everything that you pay attention to in flux, but the one who is paying attention is also in flux. In other words, when I turn the attention in this direction, this is also an experience of flux. More on that later. So the first characteristic is that if you look closely at your life, you find impermanence. And I think for all of us, whenever we've had a a time in our lives of real pain or difficulty, Like when you've lost a job or you've been dumped. Has anyone here ever been dumped? (laughs) Yes. Um, What's most painful is actually that the story you've been telling, that you've been hoping is linear, suddenly is interrupted. And for most of us, instead of trying to carve a life out of... A groundless or more watery ground, we're trying to take what is fluid and make it permanent somehow. And usually that's the source of our suffering, is trying to take what's impermanent and somehow make it permanent. The second characteristic, these markers are not so great, can everybody see this, Uh, is called Dukkha. Dukkha is made out of two words. Du, which is where you get the word dirty, and Ka, which is from the compound word Akash or Akasha, which means, does anybody know? It's an element, space. Good guess. Um, so, ka is a dirty space. And etymologically, it originally had two meanings. The first meaning was an open wound. So in medicine, the word dukkha was used to describe an open wound. If you cut yourself, that would be considered a dirty space. Dukkha was also used to describe the center of the hub of a chariot wheel. So before the days of ball bearings, they would take an axle and they would put it right into a hub. So imagine this in a stone wheel or in a wooden wheel. What would happen to the hub if you didn't have ball bearings over time? What happens? Yeah, it grinds down, it wears out, gets filthy, and it'll eventually create a very wobbly wheel. Mm -hmm. So this also was how the term dukkha was used, is that space where the axle has worn out the hub. Okay. So over time, the term dukkha comes to mean something slightly different, which is the space at the center of one's life. Where one comes back to the feeling of unsatisfaction, pain, stress, inadequacy, lack, or the inability to be content. I don't love the popular English translation of the term as suffering, because the term suffering has so much Judeo-Christian baggage that I think it narrows the term dukkha too much. So let's say that dukkha means stress, pain, lack, or the inability to be content or satisfied. And the Buddha has some very specific definitions of dukkha. He says, birth is dukkha. Death is Dukkha. Getting what you don't want is Dukkha. And being separated from what you love is Dukkha. So let's really think about that. So getting what you don't want. So you have a body, or there is a body, and it's impermanent, and it's not gonna go the way you want. How many of you have a body that you want to go a certain way? And you do backbending, and you diet in the right <coughs> way and you uh, uh, do all these things to take care of your body and even so we often have an image, some people stronger than others where we have an image of how the body is supposed to look and what it's supposed to do. I taught a retreat a week and a half ago uh, in Quebec and a woman came and sat down in front of me during interviews and was just crying. She was in her mid-70s and uh, just tears welling up in her eyes. And I said, what's happening for you? And she, she said, I'm, I can't say. She was too embarrassed, too much shame to say And I said, that's okay, when you feel ready, if you want to share it, you can share it. And then she said, "I, I can't, and she left. And then the next day she came back, she sat down, and just started crying again. So I just didn't say anything. And then she looked up at me and she said, I used to be such a beautiful woman. And then we both cried together. So we were meditating on impermanence. She had gone into the bathroom, just not thinking much of it. Went to the bathroom, got up, washed her hand, and looked in the mirror. And she didn't see the woman that she thought that she looked like. Has anyone had this experience? Maybe we should do our practice tomorrow in the nude. (laughs) In front of the mirror. I was really moved by this woman with her honesty and there's some courage I think to be able to say when I was young I was so beautiful. And now what's it like to move through the world in a way where she's in her 70s and people are not looking at her the way that people once looked at her. How many of us Are uh, caught in this idea that we can make our bodies and our Relationships go the way they go we want the way we want them to go So this is also part of this insight into impermanence and also Dukkha and I quoted earlier the Buddha also says Dukkha Is not only not getting what you don't want? Dukkha is also Being separated from what you love. How can you love somebody or something with your whole heart, with your guts, with the marrow inside your bones, and then be separated from them? Maybe they pass away. And then to fall down, because it's painful, and then to get back up again, and love more deeply. Maybe that's the heart of this whole practice, is being able to fall down, and then to get back up, and love up much more deeply. How many times do we love somebody like crazy? And it's not our fault. They're just amazing person or an animal, or a piece of land, or this amazing city. And then you have to be separated from what you love. So this is Dukkha. So in a way you could say that Dukkha is also our inability to be present with the impermanent nature of reality. And maybe this whole training of our heart is actually just the ability to respond, to be intimate, to embrace what's happening in each moment, and then not to hold on to it. So to initiate contact without fear, to embrace what's here in our present experience, without turning away, And then, not to hold on to it. Usually, most of us are good at one of those things. We're either good at the initiation, (laughs) or we're good at the embrace, or we're good at the letting go. But to cycle through all those things in a moment-to-moment way is really how this practice gets going.
0: Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth, tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.